hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Yes, that's a book of the Bible. Uh, feel free to use the table of contents. No shame in that. It'll also be, as you can tell, on the screen behind me. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And we're going to look at the story of King Asa. We're going to look at the story this week and next week. And Asa's story has a, a, few, a few moving parts, but it essentially unfolds the best I can tell, in two big phases. And uh, his adult life unfolds in two phases. And I I think, quite possibly, a lot of us, if we look back or look ahead, we might find our own adult lives unfolding in two similar phases. Uh, There's a reason why the story is in the Bible. I think it's very relevant. Um, Quick note before we jump in, we're picking up at a point in the history of the nation of Israel when the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and King Asa was the king of Judah. So um, this is God's people, but it's a little confusing because it'll say Judah and not Israel. That's, that's why. And the story picks up again with Asa as a young man and as the, the freshly crowned king of Judah. So uh, chapter 14, we'll start with verse 2. Asa did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. He removed the pagan altars and the high places. He shattered their sacred pillars and chopped down their Asherah poles. So this is a reference to idolatry, people worshiping other gods and idols uh, throughout the nation. Asa comes in charge, and uh, as you can see, he uh, uh, took, took care of that. Verse 4. He told the people of Judah to seek the Lord God of their ancestors and to carry out the instructions and the commands. He's like, look, we're going to follow the king of glory. We're going to follow him in everything. He also removed the high places and the shrines from all the cities of Judah. That's another reference to the idolatry. And, this is great, the kingdom experienced peace under him. Ace is off to a great start. Verse 6, because the land experienced peace, Asa built fortified cities in Judah. This, by the way, is a really, really big deal. Um, in the ancient world, if you've got a city, then you've got a city that's waiting to be uh, attacked. But if you have a fortified city, if you have a wall around that city, you have a, wall, you have a city that is like orders of magnitude safer than it would be without it. And he goes, all right, let's build some walls. Let's, let's get our act together here, all right? No one made war with him in those days because the Lord gave him rest. Doesn't that sound nice? So he said to the people of Judah, let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, with doors and bars. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord our God. We sought him and he gave us rest on every side. Let's just pause again and talk about how great that sounds. Rest on every side. And I love this phrase. So they built and succeeded. Pretty good. They built, they succeeded. Now, all of this uh, occurs in what I refer to as phase one of Ace's reign, phase one of his uh, adulthood. Um, he takes over as the new king of Judah. You can picture it as you go. He's young. He's ambitious. He's determined to get 
it right. And on top of all that, um, he had the courage to like go and do some hard stuff. Like he, he did the hard things. Um, for context, the past three kings, so his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, they all kind of blew it, frankly. They missed the point. They didn't focus on um, the God of Israel. The kingdom fell in increasing decline on all fronts, but especially spiritual decline. And so by the time Asa was in charge here, Judah, their nation, was just completely overrun with the worship of idols. As we read about that, Asa turned that around. That takes some courage when those are the generations that precede you. He got rid of the pagan altars. He chopped down the sacred pillars, Asherah poles, etc., etc. He did the stuff. Um, he also told the people, turn back to the Lord, man. Enough of this. Let's follow the commandments of God. And the Bible says clearly, as we just read, God blessed him for it. And he blessed all of Judah, the whole nation. God brought them peace and rest on all sides. Really good. And that gave them time um, to build their army, to fortify their cities, to have some security, to strengthen their nation economically and all the ways they prospered. And this is summed up in one statement. It's really good. They built and succeeded. Really good. They built, they succeeded. This lasted a decade plus. It's good. A decade plus of peace, prosperity. Now, as we keep reading, what we're going to find out is that Asa did not quite finish the job. He did really well. He didn't quite do perfectly. Now, we tend to think of things as binary, black or white, one way or the other. So we're saying right now Asa's doing great. And then we say, well, he didn't do perfectly. And we might just think, okay, well, then he blew it. No. I'm going to tell you a couple of things he didn't do perfectly. But the overarching story here is Asa did a great job. He was doing really, really well. But there were a couple of things that he didn't quite understand. Number one, he was a bit naive to think that he could just tell people to follow the Lord, and that would just do the trick. All right, everybody, do it. Done. Check that box. Like, he didn't quite understand how people change and grow and form over time. And he's young, you know, but he's a bit naive in that. And we're going to also see, as we keep reading, that Asa cleared out a lot of the idol worship in Judah, but he didn't do the job entirely. There were some idols that he left unaddressed. For example, um, his, his grandmother, her title was the queen mother. She continued to worship idols right there in the temple, and he looked past it. Now, that's not good, of course, but maybe we can forgive him for that. Like, it takes a lot of gumption to go tell grandma to shut it down, right? That's a brave man who's like, enough already. So, not good, but understandable. <clears throat> so, phase one, big picture. There were sustained, earnest attempts to lead people, to follow God, to do it right. And yeah, I mean, maybe not quite with all of the wisdom and the courage he needed to see real and lasting transformation, but he did really, really well. Now, when I read this part of the story, I frankly think of lots and lots of people in our church. A lot of people who hang out and are hanging out in phase one, because you're doing well. You know, your heart's in the right direction. You're getting your act together. You're doing well. And it's good. It's just good. Nobody's perfect. You're not perfect. Now there was Asa. But it's, it's good. And phase one is really good while it lasts. Um, and you can really establish a life that way, like many of you have. You've set the course. It's a good course. You've really gotten the ball rolling. And you can experience God's favor in that, just as Asa did. But... Uh, for many, uh, the real test hasn't yet come. And I see a lot of, stick with me here, the best 
the most capable 20 and 30-somethings and to some degree 40-somethings as well. And by the way, we have a disproportionate amount of those in this church. So a whole bunch of you who are not just a group of 20, 30s and sometimes 40-somethings, but like some of the very best, most capable. Like this is a pretty remarkable group of folks. Um, and you're doing what Asa did. Like you're doing well. Your heart's in the right direction. You're focusing on the right things. And I want to be clear, good job by you and good job by Asa. You build and you succeed. So many of you right now have or you are. You've built and you've succeeded. Because that's what we do in this phase of life. You can get the career going. And if you, your head's on straight and you're thinking clearly, you get the priorities straight. You get your spiritual house in order. You start your family if that's your story. You make some plans. You get rolling on those plans. Well done. Good job. But phase two will come, and the harder things will need to be addressed. The things that perhaps, to some degree, have been left unaddressed. So, um, let's see what happens next. Verse 8 now. Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, Benjamin, bearing regular shields and drawing the bow. Very clearly, all these were valiant warriors. I just want to pause here and point something out. This was a very long time ago, thousands of years ago. This is an ancient army, a 580,000-man standing army, all of whom were valiant warriors. Just uh, it, That sounds like a lot to me today. It was a whole lot thousands of years ago. They have built, and they have succeeded, and they are really secure, and they have really been blessed, and God did give them strength. This is a remarkable feat to have an army like this. Keep going. Verse 9. Then Zerah the Cushite came against them with an army of one million men and 300 chariots to boot. That's not so good. Um, again, a million man, I mean, that's a stunningly large army given. And I'm, that's not to say, well, with 580,000 men, that wasn't. No, no, no. Asa was crushing it. They were strong. They were fortified. They were trained. They had it. To, they were doing great. But here's the thing. And don't miss this. Folks, there's always a bigger army. Always. There's always a bigger army. You may be crushing it right now. I know so many of you. Like, Many of you are crushing it right now. You may have built a great life with layers of security built in. And if so, full stop, good job by you. There's nothing critical in that. That's just good. But I want to be clear, there's never any real security in the world apart from God. Because there's always a bigger army. Always. And, and God will let you do what so many of you have done. And again, well done. Build a secure life. Have a strong foundation. That's great, man. Go do it. Live for the Lord. Enjoy his favor. Enjoy the blessings of living in a country where we have enjoyed the greatest sustained prosperity in the history of the world. That's great. Plan well. Be wise. Be strong. But hear me. God loves you too much to not remind you that you always have to rely on him even when you've got your act together and you're frankly crushing it because there's always a bigger army. No matter how capable you are, no matter how faithful you have been, you can build, you can succeed, you can do it for years on end, as many of you have, 
But eventually, you will come face to face with your limitations. It's coming if it hasn't already. So let's go back to the text. We'll read verse 9 again. We'll see how Asa responded. Then Zerah the Cushite came against them with an army of 1 million men and 300 chariots that came as far as Marishah. So Asa marched out against him, lined up in battle formation in Zephathah Valley at Marishah. Verse 11, then Asa cried out to the Lord his God, Lord, there is no one besides you to help the mighty and those without strength. So I'm just going to pause right here because there is real and profound wisdom in those words. Did you catch it? He said, God, only you can protect the weak. And it's like, everybody knows that. But uh, also, only you can protect the mighty. Only you can protect the weak. And only you can protect the mighty. We pull the camera back in the life of this church. A lot of you are doing really, really well. By really every conceivable metric, you're the mighty. You're doing great. You're doing so well. There's nothing bad about that. But only God can protect you, the mighty. Okay, and what Asa does, he looks out at an even greater army and he quickly realizes there's no such thing as being so strong that you don't need God. There's no such thing as, a, as security apart from him. So verse 11, here's his response, second half of that verse. Help us, Lord our God, for we depend on you. And in your name, we have come against this large army. Lord, you are our God moment of surrender, of submission, of perspective, of clarity. You're our God. Do not let a mere mortal hinder you. And here's the result, verse 12. So the Lord routed the Cushites before Asa. Now, that, those 580,000 men, they, they did their work. But ultimately, it was the Lord who routed the Cushites before Asa and before Judah. And the Cushites fled. The larger army runs away. There was this horrible but frankly, beautiful moment where Asa, in all his strength and capability and might with his great army, stood before a greater army and, hear me, came to the end of himself. This is very important. He came to the end of himself and he realized, I can't do this on my own. I've done well, I've got my act together, I've built, I have succeeded, and it's not enough. And no amount of positive thinking, no amount of denial could possibly shield him from that reality because the million-man army was staring him right in the eye. I want to point out to you, this is so important. This is the ultimate rite of passage, isn't it? And you realize, I can't do it on my own. No matter how well I do, I can do this perfectly. I can summon all my greatest abilities and strengths and crush it like never before, and it still won't be enough. This is a difficult but beautiful moment when we come to the end of ourselves and realize we have no choice but to cry out to God. We can't do it on our own. That's the ultimate rite of passage. A phrase rite of passage that may or may not mean something to you. I want to take a minute to talk about those. Um, rite of passages um, are for really Throughout most of human history, these have been very involved uh, ceremonies. These things are almost entirely gone now in our context. But again, throughout all of human history, across cultures around the globe, rite of passage ceremonies have been a big part of how society has worked. 
it's very, it's sort of this weird twist that now in our context, it's not so much a thing. But historically, it's a huge thing. Here's what it was. A rite of passage ceremony, a rite of passage ordeal was this moment, this, this great challenge, this great ordeal when a child moved into adulthood. And that happened in a whole variety of ways because there's been thousands of different forms over the course of history. But it happened ultimately by putting that child into a situation where they were forced to come to the end of, their self, of themselves. And they had to stare down inevitable defeat and even death. And they had to, very important, face their own mortality. They had to face their own limitations. And mom and dad weren't there to catch them if they fell. And if they did it, and they succeeded, then they returned home as an adult, recognized by the community as an adult. Now, those rites of passage, as I said, almost entirely gone now. This is for a host of regions, reasons. Part of it, and this is good, part of it is that we just aren't as barbaric as we used to be. So if you know much about these rites of passage, um, a great many of them were like really dangerous. And a fair number of children literally did not survive. So, good we're not doing that, okay? So, well done, not so barbaric, that's great. But that hasn't been the case for quite some time. There's, a, there's another reason now, um, and I think the larger reason, is that we are facing fundamentally different challenges than we were before when these were the historical norm. Here's what I mean by that, pay attention. The greatest threats... For a child today, moving into adulthood are not the same threats that they were in centuries and millennia past. The greatest threats facing a child moving into adulthood today are not starvation. They are not being attacked by wild beasts. They are not invading armies like they used to be. In other words, in the past, the threats were primarily physical and today they're not. Our greatest threats now, as children move into adulthood, are much more emotional and psychological. Because, big picture, guys, look around. We've tamed the world. We did. It's a very different reality than just a few generations ago. You go back a few generations, people faced a very different life and lifestyle than we do now. And I sit here, in a, in a, as a man in a world that has been tamed, especially here in America. I'm not worried about invasion. I have food security. I have clean water in a sink. I just turn it on and boom, it's great. I have all these things. I don't fear wild animals. I mean, I don't, I don't trust cats, but that just, that just feels like common sense. Outside of that, I have no fear of a beast that might attack me, the fact that I have absolutely no capacity whatsoever to defend myself against a wild beast, it's really not a problem. Like that's, I'll be fine, you know? Like I will almost definitely die of something other than that, in spite of the fact that I don't have those, uh, uh, those, the capacity to do that at all. Um, it's just not a problem. The threats facing emerging generations today are different than they once bore. They're psychological, they're emotional, they're existential. That's a really big difference. And maybe, stay with me now, maybe that sheds some light on why adolescence 
is extending later and later into life for emerging generations. Think about it. If the world's challenges are primarily physical, then sure, let's send the kids out when they're 16, when they're 18, when they're at their physical peaks. Sorry if I just ruined your day to tell you that the physical peak is at 16 to 18, but biologically speaking, that's true. We start breaking down at the age, I'm so sorry, of 16. So, if the threats are primarily physical, send them out when they're invincible and they just, they just recover from everything. Great. But if their threats are primarily psychological, well, guys, our brains are still forming into well into our 20s and even our late 20s. And emotional maturity is actually really, really hard to come by. So here's some of, and you can make sure you categorize this correctly. Aaron's anecdotal uh, musings on some stuff. Uh, this is not from the Bible. This is not even, I didn't even read smarter people about. This is just Aaron's thoughts. So you can take it or leave it. You should probably cast it aside. But here's what I'm seeing, and I think maybe it matters. These, these rites of passage where we come to the end of ourselves and we have to cry out to God in desperation because we can't do it on our own, they're occurring later and later in life. That's because we are protected from so much for so long. Um, we often don't hit the wall until we're well into adulthood, maybe decades into adulthood. And since our problems are primarily emotional and psychological, we don't hit that big wall until we're facing all of the stress and burdens that come with established adulthood. Things like marriage and children and mortgages and politics and grief and loss and economic fears and aging parents even. That's when it's happening. The net result is that people aren't really facing their own mortality in a real way until they're in their 30s or even in their 40s. Because... It's not, it's not facing a wild beast in the wilderness a couple of years after you hit puberty anymore. It's not the threat of starvation in your early 20s anymore. Now it's the third kid or the job loss or the health scare or raising teenagers or the threat of divorce. Those are the things. So here's another observation of mine. Again, take it or leave it. Okay. But again, just what I'm seeing. So we've got that. The stereotypical like midlife crisis that we've all heard about, again, my observation, it seems to be hitting people earlier and earlier in life. Those are coming sooner. And here's my theory for that, take it or leave it. Midlife crises are born out of exhaustion from carrying emotional and psychological burdens for decades that come with adulthood. So you do that for 25, 30 years, all that stuff. At the end of that 25, 30 years, you might be running on fumes and you might hit a wall. And if you did, we'd probably call that a midlife crisis. Now, listen up, folks. Just stay with me here. That's happening earlier, so stay with me. While we have protected our kids from physical threats better than we ever have before, we are, I'm afraid, often leaving our kids completely exposed to emotional 
and psychological threats. Perhaps more so than ever before. Now, I, I, don't, I didn't frankly have the heart to read you the statistics about suicide and deep depression amongst teens, particularly as it has shifted in the last decade or so. But if you want to ruin your day, look them up. It's a crisis. It's cataclysmic. We're protecting them from physical threats better than ever. We're leaving them more and more exposed to emotional and psychological threats. Let me explain this to you. My kids, they are 14 and 12 years old, respectively, Bryce and Bree. They're wonderful people. I'm telling you now, they have absolutely no survival skills. None. None. No chance. They're in the room. I don't care. What are they going to do? They have no survival skills. <laughs> Honestly, and this is on me, okay? But we've never even taken them camping. Not once. Not a single solitary time. And that's on me. And here's the thing. Here's why. I don't get it. If you love camping, I love that you love camping, and I'm so happy for you, and I have no negative feelings towards you whatsoever. I love you. I even love your cat. But I don't get it. I don't get it. Every time people go camping, they come back and they say, it was the best weekend of my life. It's like, well, what happened? It's like, we slept on the ground, and we got bit by bugs, and we were miserable, and we couldn't sleep, and we were freezing cold, and it was the best weekend ever. And every time I'm like, why? I have worked really hard to have a home. I've got a really comfortable bed. There's this magical little box on my wall. And when I push buttons, it's whatever temperature I want it to be. Always. If I'm like, I want it to be one degree warmer. Done. All the time. Round the clock. It's the best. Why would anyone leave? I don't understand. And then I'm like, oh, well, tell me more because I don't quite. And then inevitably, they tell me a horrible bathroom story. <laughs> Actually, not a bathroom because there aren't bathrooms in the wilderness. And so every time I'm just left going, I, I have a toilet. I have more than one toilet in my home in case more than one of us needs it at the same time. And I'll spare the details, but it works great. I just push the button and it's all gone and it's fixed and everything's great and I just don't get it. So, happy if you love it. If you're glamping, that's great. My house is still better. I just don't get it. So my kids, no survival. They have never gone camping. If you ask them to start a fire, they would probably look to see if they could find an app for that. Do you understand what I'm saying? No capacity. But, with all that said, here's the reality. In spite of that, my children are both better equipped right now to face a wild beast in the wilderness than they are to face the psychological and emotional hellscape that is social media. They are way closer to their physical peaks than they are to their mental and emotional and psychological peaks. And yet, fact is, I'd be thrown in jail if I dropped my kids Bear grill style into the wilderness. But I am convinced that dropping them unmonitored into a social network is a much greater threat. Children are decades away from their psychological peaks, from where many of you, from where their parents are. And guess what? 
many parents cannot handle the emotional onslaught of social media either. You go, Aaron, how do you know that? I know that because you're their parents, and I'm your pastor, and you told me. So let's, let's try and, if we can, put this together. Net result, kids are facing those psychological dangers earlier and earlier, and therefore, they're entering adulthood emotionally exhausted from the start. And as a direct result, that midlife crisis is hitting sooner and sooner. So, putting all that together, here's what I'm seeing again. It's just my observation. We're skipping that rite of passage, so we're facing our mortality later and later. We're under emotional duress earlier and earlier, so that midlife crisis is coming sooner and sooner. And what I'm starting to see, I think, is those two crisis events meeting in the middle. And it's one big emotional and existential and psychological mess. I'm seeing it everywhere. Now, believe it or not, I said all of that to say, I think this is why King Asa's life is particularly instructive to us in our context because his life mirrored closely ours. Um, we live in a nation with the greatest sustained prosperity in the history of the world. He was in an ancient place, but he was born a prince and then a king. And he was guarded and protected and secure until he was well into adulthood, just like we are. King Asa didn't come to the end of himself until he had been leading a nation as an adult for more than a decade. He had built and he had succeeded, and then it came. So for him, his rite of passage wasn't at 16. It was more like, I don't know, 35. While staring down a million-man standing army. And that, I think, is a much closer parallel to what's happening to people today in this context. So, hope that made sense. In the end, here's what happens. Asa faces his mortality, um, his great crisis. We already read about it. And he gets it right. He nails it, all right? He turns to the Lord in desperation. God, help me. I can't do this on my own. He's given victory. It is given to him as a gift. And that victory, on so many levels, his successful bridging of the rite of passage, sets him up for the pivot point that would move him into the second phase of his life. Now, we're going to talk about the second phase of his life next week, but we're going to talk about the pivot point today. So stay with me for just a couple more minutes. Um, now we're in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Here's what happens in the wake of that great military victory. The Spirit of God came on Azariah. There's a new person in the story. He's a prophet, son of Oded. So he went out to meet Asa and said to him, here's the prophetic word, very important. Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin, hear me. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. This goes back to a theme that you've been around, you've heard me say again and again and again, which is simply this, you've got Jesus right where you want him. If you want him close and at the center of your life, that's where he is. If you want him on the fringe, that's where he is. If you want him out, that's where he is. 
And this is repeating that exact same idea, plain and simple. The Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you don't, you won't. So here's the thing, very important. Asa survives his great ordeal, and then the prophetic word comes to him, and it has this radical invitation, and it's nothing less than that. He goes, Asa, if you walk with Jesus, he will walk with you. If you seek him, you'll find him, and if you don't, you won't. Now here's the point. Please don't miss it. Guys, it's so important. There is an intimacy with God that is only available after you have come to the end of yourself. After you have been thoroughly beaten by life and you've realized I can do my very best and it's still not going to be good enough. I can't do it. After you have been beaten, after that moment, you are given the clarity, the beautiful clarity that only comes through sheer desperation. And you realize then and only then that only God can save and only God can satisfy. And hear me, that is really hard wisdom to get. But once you get it, man, it's powerful. It's powerful. So stay with me. Azariah, he comes to Asa and he says, listen, there is revival waiting for you and for your people. Now that you're on the other side of your great ordeal, now that you have clarity and perspective and wisdom that you can't get any other way but by lived experience of frankly having your butt handed to you and realizing your desperate cry for the Lord. And then he asked him plain and simple. It's black and white. It's binary. Are you going to seek him? Are you going to walk with him in real intimacy or, please don't miss it, or are you going to let your crisis go to waste? That's it. You're going to walk with him in the wake of this and take advantage of the revival and the renewal that is available to you and the people you love right now because you're on the other side of the great ordeal or are you going to let this crisis go to waste? Back to the text, verse 8. Let's see how he responded when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet. <clears throat> he took courage, and he removed the abhorrent idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the cities he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He renovated the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. What this is revealing to us is that at the beginning of his reign, when he got rid of the altars, he didn't get rid of all the altars. And he didn't renovate the entrance to the Lord's temple. What this is showing us is that Asa did good work before, but he didn't quite finish the job. He figured that, you know, a few idols left unaddressed wasn't too bad. Or perhaps over the course of that decade, a few idols started popping back up, and he let them be. But now, hear me so important, this is the part you can't skip. On the other side of his crisis, he sees what he didn't see before. Now he knows better. He knows half-hearted measures won't do. He's going to seek the Lord with his whole heart. He's going to do it with his whole heart. And that means dealing with the stuff that he left unaddressed before. 
dealing with the idols, dealing with the addiction, dealing with the questionable practices, dealing with them now. And the fact is, I love you. This is some work that needs to be done by some of you in the life of this church. You have to decide now, all right, no more half measures. No more sort of walking with Jesus. No more mostly taking care of the idols. It's time to address them all. It's time to address them all. In fact, we're not going to read it, but if, when you go home, and I know you're going to read the story, when you go home and you keep reading, you'll find out that he even took care of the grandma problem. Took some guts. All right, here's the result, verse 12. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and this is so great, with all their heart and all their soul. Isn't that good? A covenant, that's a strong word. A covenant that they, the people of God, entered into to seek the Lord, to follow him wholeheartedly, their whole heart, their whole soul. Verse 13, whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel will be put to death, young or old, man or Wait, what? Did you guys read that? <laughs> we were doing so well. Did you guys catch that part? It's like they're doing it right and everything's good. And then it's like, if you don't do it, then we're going to kill you. And it's like, wait, hold on a second. Um, here's the thing. That sits really weird in the narrative. Um, it's like, what is going on right there? Hear me. Um, we're going to address that. We're just going to address that next week. Okay, I promise. You got to come back. We are going to address that next week. I did, I did some reason. I was like, huh, I'm going to find out what other pastors have done. And so I read a bunch of sermons about, you know, this text and what did they do. I'll tell you what they did. Everyone that I read, they just skipped it. They're like, nope, that didn't happen. We're moving on. Next week, we are going to talk about it. But for today, here's what if for little thing that it is for us today, this is a hint for us, okay? This is a hint for us that even though Ace is getting his act together, there's still some stuff he doesn't understand. He doesn't quite yet know, have the maturity to manage his zeal. He doesn't know how people change. So he's still, there's still some stuff going on. We'll get there. But that's next week. Now let's get back to the good stuff because the next verse, right back to really good things. Um, they took an oath to the Lord in a loud voice, was shouting with trumpets, with ram's horns. Listen, all of Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn it wholeheartedly. In other words, the threat wasn't necessary, was it? All of Judah did it with their whole hearts. It wasn't necessary, but again, next week. They had sought him with all sincerity, and he was found by them, so the Lord gave them rest. That idea again, on every side. Rest, by the way, we're not going to read it today, that extended for decades. So, all right, let me sort of plug this in here. A lot of folks, a lot of people, disproportionate amount of people in the life of this church are in that stage of life. 20s, 30s, maybe early 40s. And y'all are like, this is an exceptional group of people. You've done it, man. You have built and you have succeeded. And I'm not taking, like, just good job by you, full stop. So many of you, you have decided, I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to tear down some idols. Good job by you. But I also know, again, because I'm your pastor, so many of you have recently discovered just how much you need Jesus to face this life. Some of you are or recently have. You can look in your rearview mirror and find the time that you realized, I can do everything perfectly, and it's still not going to be enough. I can't do this on my own. So hear me on this, folks. It's so simple. Just do what Asa did. Turn to God. Surrender to him in full. You've done well, but now it's time to be wholehearted. Now it's time to address all the idols. And here's what I mean by that. It's strong, but it's clear. Don't 
let your crisis go to waste. Your great ordeal is supposed to end in revival. That's how God set the whole thing up. It's supposed to end in revival. When we've come to the end of ourselves, we're ready for all the best stuff. Crisis precedes renewal. Remember? Crisis precedes renewal. Okay. Emily's going to come on up and help me close this thing down because I've talked too long as per the norm. But I want to read you uh, uh, again, second half of chapter 15, verse 2. The word of the Lord to Asa and to us. So clear. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you abandon him, he will abandon you. So clear. He's, he's right where we want him to be. If you're facing your great ordeal now, I just want to plead with you, do what Asa did. Run to Jesus. Cry out for mercy. Ask for his strength to endure what you can't do on your own. Hold on tight. And I want to encourage you, the other side of this brings the chance for great renewal. And what you're facing now, it's not in vain. It's the way forward. God will keep his promises. The best stuff is on the other side. It is. So hold on and run to Jesus. And listen, if you're on the other side of your great ordeal, then hear me. Please hear and accept the word of the Lord to Asa and to us. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you don't, he won't. Walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Submit to him in everything. Tear down any idols that remain. Maybe there's one or two. Maybe there's 10 or 20. Tear any of them that remain and live for Jesus wholeheartedly. Because I'm telling you, you've done the hard stuff. You've built and you've succeeded. You've faced the great ordeal. And most importantly, you've learned through crisis, only God can save. Only God can satisfy. And if you don't apply that wisdom by wholeheartedly walking with Jesus, then that crisis has gone to waste.